The Bosnian War was part of the breakup of the former state of Yugoslavia and Eastern Europe. Between 1992 and 1995, over 100,000 landmines were laid during the conflict. And since that point, over 8,000 landmine-related casualties have occurred. Bosnia and Herzegovina has also been a testing ground for multilateral peacekeeping. The crisis played a critical role in the development of Canada's Great Human Security Initiatives of the mid-1990s. Today, we will be discussing the confluence of landmine issues, the difficulties of conflict resolution, and Canada's more recent attempts to jump back into international peacekeeping. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of The Diffuser. This is your host, Paul Esau, and this podcast is a product of the Canadian Landmine Foundation. My guest today is Dr. Timothy Donay, Director of the Master's in International Policy Program at the Balsillia School of International Affairs in Waterloo, Ontario, and Associate Professor in the Department of Global Studies at Wilfrid Laurier University. He also serves as the Chair of the Peace and Conflict Studies Association of Canada, PAX-CAN. Today, we'll be talking about peacekeeping, landmine-sniffing dogs, and Canadian foreign policy. Dr. Donay, and welcome to The Diffuser. I wanted to ask you today about the field schools that you led from Wilfrid Laurier University of Waterloo, Ontario to Bosnia a little more than a year ago. The Canadian Landmine Foundation had some collaboration in that venture, especially in the person of one of our board members, former Minister Lloyd Axworthy. But you were the man on the ground guiding 13 students around Sarajevo. Can you tell me a bit about this field school and what questions it was meant to make students ask over the course of your time in Bosnia? Oh, thanks, Paul. Um, so this was actually Lloyd's idea initially. Um, he had been uh, expressing an interest in uh, taking students to Bosnia um, a number of years ago, and I was brought into a couple of conversations. Uh, and then ultimately, because uh, Laurier and and Department of Global Studies has been offering an increasing number of field courses, uh, we decided it made sense to put on the course as part of uh, our regular schedule of field courses. So uh, we went to Bosnia in uh, May of 2017, spent two and a half weeks on the ground. And uh, the goal really was to expose students to uh, a mature peace building operation, uh, look at the legacy of conflict uh, in Bosnia and in the Balkans more generally, and also look at the successes and failures, I suppose, of uh, the peace-building effort that's been uh, underway in Bosnia since uh, the mid-1990s. So obviously, as a member of the Canadian Landmine Foundation, I'm really interested in one specific component of the trip, which is the fact that you guys visited uh, land, a demining facility when you were there. I think Nor- Norwegian People's Aid demining facility outside of Sarajevo. Uh, can you tell me a bit about that portion of the trip and how that uh, specific aspect of the peace-building process, which is removing uh, landmines, uh, the remnants of war uh, really impacted the students and helped kind of solidify the challenges of peace building um, in Bosnia. Sure, sure. As we were planning the trip, uh, it struck us uh, that it was important uh, to uh, expose students to the reality of landmines in Bosnia because this is obviously a really important part uh, of the story of Bosnia over the past 25 years. There were some one million landmines planted in the course of the conflict there, and uh, the demining process is still very much 
underway. Uh, the hope was, I think, to have Bosnia fully demined by 2019, but it looks like it's that, that deadline is going to slip uh, five or six years. So for me, in terms of uh, of the instructor of the course, it was it was important, I think, to to expose students to the reality of landmines and to the sort of nefarious nature of these weapons in terms of their their impacts after conflict, and how very difficult it is to actually deal with uh, the landmine problem in the aftermath of war. One of the highlights of the visit to the landmine facility, of course, was uh, was the fact that this is one of the few places in the world where they train uh, mine detection dogs. Mm-hmm. So they had uh, a whole range of uh, Belgian uh, shepherds, right from puppies to adult dogs, that they were training to uh, to detect explosives and. Uh, we were able to see uh, the various training regimens that they used on these dogs and uh, the way they actually use them in the field in order to detect and help clear landmines. So that was that was interesting for the students, and they were able to interact with the dogs and uh, and uh, see what a what a what a cool experience this is, but also what important work that they do. Yeah, that's quite something. I mean, I've always heard about landmine dog training, but to see that on the ground would be mm-hmm. a pretty fun experience. So. I guess one of the questions that I have is that the CLMF right now works mostly with uh, Cambodia and demining actions in Cambodia. So the differences between Cambodia and demining there and obviously demining in Bosnia are significant in certain ways. Uh, how were you struck by the unique challenges of, say, a demining or um, ammunition and uh, mission recovery operations in uh, Bosnia as opposed to other areas around the world in, say, Angola, Angola or Colombia or uh, Cambodia? Well, I, th- I think any any post-conflict context where there's landmines, the, the the geography of the place really factors in in terms of how how easy or difficult it is to clear mines in the aftermath of conflict. And in Bosnia, uh, because it's uh, it's a fairly mountainous country, um, uh, that the, a lot of the clearance has been very difficult because of the the nature of the terrain. A lot of the landmines are in forested areas and. Uh, riverbanks, and I think it's been a real challenge in terms of getting the last of the landmines uh, demined uh, or, or cleared. Uh, open agricultural fields is is one thing; it's a lot of work, but uh, the, the technical challenges are, are somewhat different than trying to clear mines uh, in in forested areas where your ability to use technology is much more limited. So, so, so geography plays a real important factor, I think, in terms of. Uh, of mine clearance and 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 the the ease with which and the time it takes to actually clear mines. Yeah, I've been reading a lot of stories. I think about uh, uh, mine landmine survivors in Bosnia who obviously were gathering firewood or other resources in mm-hmm. in in the woods in the forests, and that's where they encountered landmine that you know changed their life and for, uh, usually they lose a leg or so forth out of that experience. But um, Landmines extend the legacy and impact of a conflict and make it more difficult for society to stabilize and rebuild. I noticed that a lot of your work, specifically over the years, is focused on the international intervention in Bosnia and the Dayton Accords. So in what ways have landmines, weapon caches, ammunition dumps, etc., made it more difficult to establish a robust peace in Bosnia? Because I've seen that there have, there have been weapons caches, landmines, others that have been discovered up until the mid-2000s, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, that obviously were still in circulation or in uh, munitions, I guess, uh, dumps there in the country and that can be very difficult for a peace process if there's still a lot of ammunition and weapons that are in circulation yeah 
Yeah. I mean, one of the things we learned over the course of the field course is that uh, there are a lot of obstacles to building a robust peace in Bosnia. I mean, I wouldn't say that landmines are among the most significant, but they certainly are significant, uh, particularly when it comes to questions of, uh, of socioeconomic redevelopment. I mean, Bosnia is, uh, has been, uh, continues to be a, uh, an area with a significant rural population, uh, a lot of agriculture and uh, the, the, the legacy of landmines in Bosnia has really been one in which it's been a, a challenge to be able to, to, to restart agricultural activity as a result of the, of the concern around landmines and the need to clear landmines before, before, uh, before you can begin going back into the fields again. I had this experience come very much uh, to, to light when I was uh, living in Bosnia, in central Bosnia, in uh, 1997, I believe it was, and uh, the apartment complex I was living in, when I was there, one of my neighbors was actually out in the in his fields uh, trying to uh, to do some farming and uh, encountered a landmine and it killed him. So this is a, 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 a certainly not so much anymore, but was the reality of of uh, the post conflict recovery process and in, in the immediate aftermath of the war, where this sort of the, the reality of landmines was was something people had to deal with, particularly in rural areas, on an ongoing basis. Uh, the other part of the question, I think, is around uh, the, the the legacy of ammunition dumps and the continued circulation and, and availability of weapons and ammunition. Uh, Bosnia's peace process has been troubled uh, in recent years. Uh, there's been, I think one could safely call it a crisis, uh, in which uh, there's increasing fears that the peace process will actually collapse and the parties will actually go back into open conflict again. So this raises fears again of the, the ability of, uh, of, of militias and armed groups to actually um, retake some of these uh, some of these ammunition and, and weapons that are circulating and actually re-engage re with the conflict on the basis of those. So there are different dimensions, I think, to the legacy of, uh, of, of, of weapons and ammunition and mines uh, in the Bosnian conflict that are still active today, I think. Wow, uh, that's a terribly sad story about your neighbor. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, one of the things that I've often wondered about, because you're an expert on peacekeeping, I wanted to ask you this, and this might be a stupid question, but um, because the uh, Bosnia peace process and the conflict in some ways cor correlates nicely with the uh, Ottawa process in the 90s and Canada's leadership on that Ottawa process to ban all landmines around the world, I've often been told or hinted at uh, to me that part of the reason that landmines became a major issue in the West around this time is because peacekeepers who were involved in peacekeeping missions in places like I guess Rwanda or in Africa or in Bosnia were from the West were encountering landmines in horrific situations and that raised the specter of what landmines could actually do and their uh, I guess impact on the ground in a way that the West could no longer ignore. Uh, could you speak a little bit to this myth? Is there any reality to it? Is it a myth? I mean is it simply just a correlation that's not actually a causation? Mm. I mean I've heard the same story. Uh, I actually don't know where it comes from or how much truth there is to it. I think there's some credibility to it, for sure, because um, uh, mines are, in peacekeeping contexts, a, a constant worry, a constant headache in terms of peacekeepers being able to do patrols and, and essentially do the, carry out the mandate that they're, they're tasked to do. 
certainly from Canada's own experience in Afghanistan, where IEDs were a constant threat and a danger and, and uh, took a number of Canadian lives, uh, this is something that peacekeepers and uh, and uh, those who who operate peacekeeping operations are are very much concerned about. So it doesn't surprise me that this is something that uh, military commanders would have brought back as as an issue that 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 needs to be dealt with. Uh, certainly, if I'm a if I'm a contingent commander in a uh, in a contemporary peacekeeping operation, I would I would. Uh, love to not have to worry about about the presence of landmines amid all of the other enormous challenges of contemporary peacekeeping. So, so I think there's probably some merit to the argument in terms of of bringing home the reality of the dangers and the menace of landmines uh, in terms of the post-conflict uh, peacebuilding process, but also in terms of actual uh, the work of peacekeepers on the ground. It's a little bit of a cynical question, so I'm kind of relieved to hear that it wasn't some grand conspiracy that. <laughs> had caused the two to be correlated. But in also in one of your recent papers uh, titled Canada's Not Quite Back, and I'm not sure if it's been published yet or not, so you can speak to that a little bit as well afterwards. Um, but you talk about Canada's hesitation to really invest in the peacekeeping game. You argue that, that this is because from the, of the more complicated peacekeeping operations in the 1990s, including in Rwanda, Somalia, and Bosnia, Herzegovina. And what do you think the Bosnia operation in some ways taught the West about peacekeeping and how did it affect people like Joe Clark, who was foreign minister at the time, as well as Axworthy afterwards and their policies involving disarmament and arms control in Canada? Well, I think one of the things that, that Bosnia taught the West, and it's a lesson we're still very much learning, is that it is extraordinarily difficult to try to do peacekeeping work in contexts where there is little peace to keep. Um, I mean, Bosnia also demonstrated that peacekeeping is an inherently political instrument. Uh, it's one of the few tools uh, in the hands of the international community to manage international conflict. So it ends up becoming sort of the Swiss army knife of international interventions. It's, it's, it's deployed uh, in conditions uh, in, in which it is prob was probably never designed to operate. Uh, so the situations from the early 1990s where you had peacekeepers in terribly difficult circumstances in places like Bosnia, uh, Rwanda, Somalia, uh, are in many ways replicated today. I, I was in South Sudan earlier this summer, and, and the parallels of South Sudan in 2018 with Bosnia in, in 1993, say, are, are fairly significant in terms of, of the same sorts of situations that, uh, that peacekeepers are trying to deal with, right? Trying to protect civilians, for example, in the, uh, uh, in the context of ongoing armed conflict in which civilians are deliberately targeted by uh, armed parties to the conflict. So I think in terms of, of the impact of that experience from the early 1990s on, on people like Joe Clark and, and Lloyd Axworthy, uh, I think it has uh, reinforced the complexities of contemporary peacekeeping in that peacekeeping is no longer the sort of first-generation Cyprus-type operation where uh, you're simply inserting lightly armed peacekeepers between two uh, parties to the conflict who have accepted a ceasefire. Right? Now it's very much uh, a, a case of peacekeepers being shot at, uh, peacekeepers having to intervene, uh, in cases where civilians are being attacked or massacred. And I think, with some justification, I think it's made Canada and other Western countries for sure uh, wary about 
the kinds of situations it might contemplate uh, sending its own peacekeepers into. And it's really changed the nature of uh, who contributes peacekeepers and how, how peacekeepers are contributed. And I think, I think the hesitation of Canada over the last several years in terms of living up to this Canada is back mantra that Prime Minister Trudeau uh, came into office with, that we were going to re-engage with the international community and we were going to become, uh, make peacekeeping a, a significant part of, of Canadian foreign policy again. I think the realization of the complexities of some of these contemporary peacekeeping operations has really been sobering and has led to considerable caution in terms of, of how we proceed. Of course, we've now made a commitment in Mali um, but it's a significantly smaller commitment and a more cautious commitment than I think than I think we had initially been led to believe at the beginning of the of the liberal mandate. Yeah, I think that your comment earlier about there must be a peace to keep is particularly salient. I've often wondered about that peacekeeping operations as well, and that obviously has been kind of the uh, elephant in the room when it comes to Canada's contributions, as you were talking about. So. You've argued, I think, in that same paper, as well as other papers, that Canada sits at a bit of a crossroads in regards to its engagement with the UN and other multilateral in institutions. So some people have suggested that we should recommit to peacekeeping, others that we should become champions of the nuclear ban treaty or um, other disarmament initiatives, others that we should greatly increase foreign aid to our, refug or our refugee intake. So what do you see as being the key ingredient of a Canadian return to the global stage? Is it Maui? Is it something else? Is it more involvement of the UN, a seat on the Canadian Security Council, or sorry, the UN Security Council? Uh, what, in your opinion, would be a great return for Canada to the international stage? Well, I think uh, because I've been working on peacekeeping issues, it's, it's sort of the one area where I think Canada can make can make a real contribution. I mean, all of the things you mentioned, um, uh, from from dealing with refugee the refugee crisis to uh, to working on questions of nuclear weapons ban. I mean, all of those are I think are important issues as as is peacekeeping. I think regardless uh, of which one of those sort of larger thematic issues uh, takes priority, I think the real question is whether Canada is. Uh, is committed to, to, in a sense, putting its money where its mouth is in terms of being back on the international stage. Uh, as you mentioned in, in, the, in the 90s, um, Canada, as it said, punched above its weight in terms of its contribution to uh, multilateralism. Uh, and at the time, we sort of backed our ideational contributions, right, the human security uh, initiative, the landmines ban, uh, the responsibility to protect doctrine with concrete material contributions on the ground. Uh, and I think we have a tendency, I think, as Canadians to sort of rest on that reputation uh, and, and in some ways to consider ourselves to some degree a moral superpower and that, and that, that this idea that the world needs more Canada. Um, but the more one spends around the UN system, for example, the more one realizes that it really is a, a kind of a, a pay-to-play kind of operation where, where if, if you want influence within international organizations, you need to actually make concrete, real, material contributions to back up those commitments. And I, th and I think Canada has talked a good game over the past several years uh, but as the peacekeeping file shows, we haven't really been willing to back up those uh, those words with with concrete actions. So, for example, on the on the peacekeeping file, if I was a country like 
Ethiopia or Pakistan with six, seven, eight thousand peacekeepers in the field, I wouldn't be all that impressed uh, by Canadian contributions of two, three hundred soldiers uh, in terms of, of Canada staking a claim to, 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 to playing a leadership role on the international stage with regard to international peace and security, or making a claim that, uh, that this somehow puts us in a good position to, uh, to win a seat at the Security Council. One last question for you. Uh, are there any plans to lead another field school in the future from Waterloo to uh, Bosnia or an equivalent country around the world? Is this, is this in the works? Uh, it's certainly a possibility. Uh, we, so, so this school was run out of the Department of Global Studies at, at Laurier, and we have three distinct uh, concentrations, uh, peace and conflict, globalization and culture, and international development. Uh, so we had just this year, for example, we, we had an international development field school to, to southern India. So in a sense, we've sort of been developing a rotating series of, of, of schools which focus on each of our various concentrations. So within a couple or three years again, well, I think we'll be uh, reconsidering uh, a, a peace and conflict field school uh, and, and Bosnia may com- come up again on the, on the radar I really hope it happens. I was reading through the syllabus for the course, and I got pretty excited myself. I wanted to go on the trip, so I wish I'd been here a couple years earlier. But thanks again, and uh, yeah, I appreciate your time. No problem. Thanks, Paul. This is Paul Esau, and this is a product of the Canadian Landmine Foundation, with music from Paul McLeod and recording help from Nathaniel Spahn.